coming right up. Thank you. 
We would like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. And, of course, uh, after the playing of our theme, which uh, somebody inquired about that. What is it? And, of course, (laughs) we've been doing this for so many years. The theme is by a gentleman named Benny Green, and he is the trombonist on the date. And uh, he did a number of dates for Blue Note Records, but this one in particular was his masterpiece. And uh, the album was called Soul Stirrin', and uh, that is the title track. And, of course, Mr. Green assembled a stellar group of musicians to, uh, to do that album, including the great Gene Ammons, who plays one of the tenor saxophones, uh, and he takes the first solo on our theme, and pianist Sonny Clark, equally a legend, bassist Ike Isaacs, and a second tenor saxophonist, a gentleman from Philadelphia by the name of Billy Root, and he takes the second saxophone solo. And uh, the drummer, of course, is the magnificent Elvin Jones. And that makes up the group uh, on the album, the classic Blue Note album called Soul Stirrin'. And that tune was written by Mr. Green. And, of course, the band uh, does the, um, the vocal on the, on the tune, which, which makes it happen. And that's been our theme song for many years and will continue to be. And it's a great introduction to jazz. My name's Gavin Walker. And we have three hours of some of the finest in jazz music. And as is our new policy, the jazz feature will be first up on the show. And this evening brings us to part two of our annual, I guess, educational jazz feature. That's what it is. And, and we hope that it's entertaining as well. This time... The person involved in our jazz feature is the great American maestro, Leonard Bernstein. And he narrates. Mr. Bernstein, of course, was was born in the States. He was familiar with every type of music, and he was a worldwide ambassador for quality music. And uh, he had a regular program on... Um, on television, CBS television, for many years called Omnibus. And uh, Bernstein was um, talked about, uh, tried to communicate to people who uh, often found, uh, say, classical music, or in this case, jazz music, uh, baffling. How is it put together? Uh, uh, why? What, what, what makes it so unique? Uh, and this sort of thing. But he had a knack. Of, of explaining all of this stuff in, in, in fairly simple terms. Um, when one tries to describe music or some of the things that happen, you, 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 I find this myself too. I, I can explain up to a point in simple terms, but then when I start talking about uh, uh, scales and, and, and chords and whole tone scales and, and uh, things like that, uh, then uh, if a person is not musically educated, then they kind of look at you and, and go, what, what's all that mean? 
<laughs> so Bernstein had a way of 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 communicating um, about how jazz was was put together, and and in this thing, uh, this recording that that you're going to hear, you'll hear what is jazz and what isn't jazz, and uh, then uh, the latter part. Um, talks about how a popular song, a standard tune that could be written by Cole Porter or George Gershwin or whatever, is put together, and, and um, how jazz musicians interpret that tune in their own individual styles and bring to it their own personalities, that sort of thing. So this is what this um, album is all about. It was recorded in 1956, so there's a few dated references, and, and I think you might find them funny. Um, they, they don't really apply to today, but they're just kind of offhand statements by um, Mr. Bernstein and uh, just part of what was happening um, at that time, which was a long time ago. But it still stands, I think, as a very important document and can make the whole idea of jazz music, I think, a little clearer uh, for those people that are interested in the music and may even become a little more sophisticated in their listening by listening to this recording. Now, um, Mr. Bernstein demonstrates some of the things uh, on his own. Uh, he plays the piano, but there's also musical examples by such people as Louis Armstrong, Buck Clayton, uh, Phil Woods, uh, the great clarinetist Buster Bailey, uh, Bessie Smith, uh, and, and different Duke Ellington, different people, um, and also Miles Davis and John Coltrane right at the end. So I think without further ado, we'll just get into this. Uh, this album is called What is Jazz? And the narrator, of course, is the great virtuoso pianist, composer, conductor, and as I said, ambassador of music, Leonard Bernstein. And he was very familiar with jazz. He respected, uh, unlike a lot of um, people in classical music, he respected jazz musicians just as much he, uh, as he did virtuoso classical musicians. Uh, there was no snobbery at all with Leonard Bernstein. He loved them all, as he'll tell you. So here we go. What is jazz? Leonard Bernstein. Have fun with this. Our jazz feature this evening. Now anyone hearing this music, anyone on any civilized part of this earth, east or west, pole to pole, would immediately say, that is jazz. We are going to try to investigate jazz, not through the usual historical approach of up the river from New Orleans, etc., which has become all too familiar, but through approaching the music itself. We are going to examine the musical innards of jazz to find out, once and for all, what it is that sets it apart from all other music. Jazz is a very big word. It covers a multitude of sounds, all the way from the earliest blues. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. 
Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. To Dixieland bands. To Charleston bands. To swing bands. To Boogie Woogie. To Crazy Bop. To Cool Bop. Mambo and much more. It is all jazz and I love it all. I love it because it's an original kind of emotional expression in that it is never wholly sad or wholly happy. Even the blues has a robustness and a hard-boiled quality that never lets it become sticky sentimental no matter how self-pitying the words are. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. My new man had left me just a And on the other hand, the gayest, wildest jazz always seems to have some hint of pain in it. Listen to this trumpet and see what I mean. That is what intrigues me about jazz. It's unique, a form of expression all its own. Then I love it for its humor. It really plays with notes. We always speak of playing music. We play Brahms, we play Bach. It's a term perhaps more properly applied to tennis. But jazz is real play. It fools around with notes, so to speak. It has fun with them. It is therefore entertainment in its truest sense. But I find I have to defend jazz to those, for instance, who say it is low class. But then all music has low class origins since it comes from folk music, which is necessarily earthy. After all, Haydn minuets are only a refinement of simple, rustic German dances, and so are Beethoven scherzos. An aria in a Verdi opera can often be traced back to the most basic Neapolitan fisherman. Besides, there has always been a certain shadow of indignity around music, particularly around the players of music. I suppose it is due to the fact that historically, players of music seem to lack the dignity of composers of music. This is especially true of jazz, which is almost completely a player's art, depending as it does on improvisation rather than on composition. This means that the player of jazz is himself the real composer, which gives him a creative and therefore more dignified status. Well, then there are those who argue that jazz is loud. Well, so are Sousa marches, and we don't hear complaints about them. Besides, it's not always loud. 
It is very often extremely delicate, in fact. Perhaps this objection stems from the irremediable situation of what is, after all, a kind of brass band playing in a room too small for it. But that is not the fault of jazz itself. However, the main argument against jazz has always been that it is not art. I think it is art and a very special one. But before we can argue about whether it is or not, we must know what it is. And so I propose to share with you some of the things I know and love about jazz. Let's take that blues we heard before and find out what it's made of. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. I woke up this morning with a... Now, what are the elements that make that jazz? Well, first of all, there is the element of melody. Western music in general is based, melodically speaking, on scales. Major, minor, and some others. But there is a special scale for jazz, which is a variation of the regular major scale you all practiced as kids. In jazz, this scale gets modified three different times. The third note gets lowered from this to this. The fifth note gets lowered from this to this. And the seventh note gets lowered from this to this. Those three changed notes are referred to as blue notes. So instead of a phrase, which ordinarily would go something like this, which is not particularly jazzy, we would get, using blue notes, this phrase, which begins to show a jazz quality. But this so-called jazz scale is used only melodically. In the harmony underneath, we still use our old unflatted notes, and that causes a dissonance to happen between the tune and the chords. You hear that dissonance? But this very dissonance has a true jazz sound. Jazz pianists are always using those two dissonant notes together, and there's a reason for it. They are really searching for a note that isn't there at all, but one which lies somewhere between the two notes, between this and this. And the note is called a quarter tone. The quarter tone comes straight from Africa, which is the cradle of jazz, and where quarter tones are everyday stuff. We can produce one on a wind instrument or a stringed instrument or with the voice, but on the piano we have to approximate it by playing together the two notes on each side of it. The real note is somewhere in that crack between them. Now let's see if I can sing you a quarter tone, if you will forgive my horrid voice. Here is an African Swahili tune I once heard. The last note of it will be a quarter tone. Now that last note, la, sounds as if it's terribly out of tune, but actually it is a real note in another musical language. In jazz, it is right at home. Now, just to show how important these so-called blue notes are to jazz, let's hear that same blues played without them, 
using only the plain white notes of the major scale. There is something missing, isn't there? It just isn't jazz. But even more important than melody in jazz is the element of rhythm. Rhythm is the first thing you associate with the word jazz, after all. There are two aspects to this point, the first being the beat. The beat is what you hear when the drummer's foot is beating the bass drum, or when the bass player is plucking his bass, or even when the pianist is kicking the pedal with his foot. All this is elementary. The beat goes on from beginning to the end of any number, two or four of them to a bar, never changing in tempo or in meter. This is the heartbeat, so to speak, of jazz. But more involved and more interesting is the rhythm going on over the beat, rhythmic figures which depend on something called syncopation, a word you have certainly heard, but maybe were never quite sure of. A good way to understand syncopation might be to think of a heartbeat that goes along steadily and at a moment of shock misses a beat. It is that much of a physical reaction. Technically, syncopation means either the removal of an accent where you expect one or the placing of an accent where you least expect one. In either case, there is the element of surprise and shock. The body responds to this shock either by compensating for the missing accent or by reacting to the unexpected one. Now where do we expect accents? Always on the first beat of a bar, on the downbeat. If there are two beats in a bar, one is going to be strong and two is going to be weak, exactly as in marching. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Even if there are four beats in a bar, it is still like marching, because although we all have only two legs, the sergeant still counts out in four. Two, three, four. Hop, two, three, four. There is always that natural accent on one. Take it away, and there is a simple syncopation. One, two, three, four. <coughs> two, three, four. Two, three, four. You see that that missing accent on the first beat evokes a body response. Now, the other way to make a syncopation is exactly the reverse. Put an accent on a weak beat, the second or the fourth, where it does not belong. Like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. This is what we all do when we listen to jazz, clapping our hands or snapping our fingers on the offbeat. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now those are the basic facts of syncopation, and now we can understand its subtler aspects. Between one beat and another, there lie shorter and even weaker beats. And when these get accents, the shock is correspondingly greater. Since the weaker the beat you accentuate, the greater the surprise. Let's take eight of these fast beats in a bar. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The normal accent would fall on one and five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now instead, let's put a big accent on a real weak one, which is the fourth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 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 Oh. 
As you see, we got a pure rumba rhythm simply by accentuating the weak fourth beat. Of course, the strongest syncopation of all would obviously be obtained by doing both things at once, putting an accent on a weak beat and taking away the accent from the strong. So now we will do this double operation, put a wallop on the weak fourth beat and remove the strong fifth beat entirely, and we get one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four. begins to sound like the Congo, doesn't it? Well, now that you've heard what syncopation is like, let's see what that same blues we heard before would sound like without it. I think you'll miss that essential element, the very life of jazz. Sounds square, doesn't it? Well, that takes care of two very important elements, melody and rhythm. But jazz would not be jazz without its special tonal colors, the actual sound values you hear. These colors are many, but they mostly stem from the quality of the Negro singing voice. For instance, when Louis Armstrong plays his trumpet, he is only doing another version of his own voice. Listen to an Armstrong record like... I can't give you anything but love, and compare the trumpet solo with the vocal solo. You can't miss the fact that they're by the same fellow. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I'm plenty of, baby. Dream my while. Now the trumpet version. But the Negro voice has engendered other imitations, too. The saxophone is in itself a kind of imitation of it, breathy, a little hoarse, with a vibrato or tremor in it. Just to show you what a vibrato is, let's hear that sax again without one. Then there are all the different growls and rasps we get by putting mutes on the horns. Here, for example, is a trumpet with a cup mute. And now with a wah-wah mute. And now listen to a trombone with a plunger mute. There are other tonal colors that derive from Afro-Cuban sources, like the bongo drums, the maracas, the Cuban cowbell, and all the others. Then there are the colors that have an oriental flavor, the vibraphone, 
various symbols, and so on. All these special colorations make their contribution to the total quality of jazz. You have certainly all heard jazz tunes played straight by non-jazz orchestras and wondered what was missing. There certainly is something missing, the coloration. Let's now hear that same blues sung straight, that is, without any jazz shading at all. Not the real thing, is it? There is one more jazz element, one which may surprise some of you who think jazz is not an art. I refer to form. Did you know, for example, that the blues is a classical form? Most people use the word blues to mean any song that is blue or torchy or low down or breast beating, like Stormy Weather, for example. But Stormy Weather is not a blues and neither is Moanin' Low nor The Man I Love nor even The Birth of the Blues. They are all popular songs. The blues is basically a strict poetic form combined with music. It is based on a rhymed couplet with the first line repeated. For example, Billie Holiday sings, My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. But when she sings it, she repeats the first line, so it goes, My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. I said, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man that I've ever seen. That is one stanza of blues. A full blues is nothing more than a succession of such stanzas for as long as the singer wishes. Did you notice that the blues couplet is, of all things, in iambic pentameter? My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. This is about as classic as one can get. It means that you can take any rhymed couplet in iambic pentameter, from Shakespeare, for example, and make a perfect Macbeth blues. I will not be afraid of death and bane till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. It makes a lovely blues. I will not be afraid of death or bane. I said I will not be afraid of death or bane Till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane Now if you've been very attentive, you've noticed that each of those three lines got four bars apiece, making in all a twelve-bar stanza. But the voice itself sang only about half of each four-bar line, I will not be afraid of death and bane, and the rest was filled up by the orchestra. This filling up is called a break. And here in the break, we have the origin of the instrument imitating the voice, the very soil in which jazz grows. Perhaps the essential sound of jazz is Louis Armstrong improvising the breaks in a blues sung by Bessie Smith. From this kind of voice imitation, all instrumental improvising has since developed. 
Listen to that sound. My mama says I'm a reckless mind. Daddy says I'm wild. My mama says I'm a reckless My daddy says I'm Did you notice the instrument that is accompanying the singer? It is a harmonium, that wheezy little excuse for an organ which we all associate with hymn tunes. But far from being out of place in the blues, this instrument is especially appropriate, since the chords in the blues must always be exactly the same three chords we all know from hymn tunes. These chords must always remain in a strict classical pattern, pure and simple. Try to vary them and the blues quality flies out the window. Well, there you have it. Melody, rhythm, tone color, form, harmony. In each department, there are special features that make jazz instead of just music. Let's now put them all together and hear a full-blown, all-out, happy blues. Oh, did you know that blues could be happy? Just listen. By this time, I've probably given you the impression that jazz is nothing but blues. Not at all. I've only used the blues to investigate jazz because it embodies the various elements of jazz in so clear and pure a way. But the rest of jazz is concerned with applying these same elements to something called the popular song. The popular song, too, is a form and has certain strict patterns. Popular songs are in either two-part or three-part form. By far the most numerous are in the three part. You all know this form, of course, from hearing it so much. It is simple as pie. Anyone can write one. Take Sweet Sue, for instance. All you need, really, is the first eight bars, which in the trade are called the front strain. Now the song is practically written, since the whole thing will be only 32 bars long, four groups of eight bars apiece. Now the second eight is the same exactly as the first, making 16 bars, and we're already half finished. Now the next eight bars, which is called the release, or the bridge, or just simply the middle part. This must be different music, but it doesn't matter if it's very good or not, since most people don't remember it too well anyway. and then the same old front strain all over again. 
and it's finished. 32 bars and a classic forever. Easy, isn't it? But Sweet Sue is still not jazz. A popular song doesn't become jazz until it is improvised on. And there you have the real core of all jazz, improvisation. Remember I said that jazz was a player's art rather than a composer's? Well, this is the key to the whole problem. It is the player who, by improvising, makes jazz. He uses the popular song as a kind of dummy to hang his notes on. He dresses it up in his own way, and it comes out an original. So the pop tune, in acquiring a new dress, changes its personality completely, like many people who behave one way in blue jeans and in a wholly different way in dinner clothes. Some of you may object to this dressing up, you who say, let me hear the melody and not all this embroidery. But until you accept this principle of improvisation, you will never accept or understand jazz itself. What does improvising mean? It means that you take a tune, keep it in mind with its harmony and all, and then, as they used to say, just go to town or make it up as you go along. You go to town by adding ornaments and figurations or by making real old-fashioned variations, just as Mozart and Beethoven did. Let me show you a little of how Mozart did it, and then you may understand better how Errol Garner does it. Mozart took a well-known nursery rhyme, which he knew as A vous direz je maman, and which we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or as a way of singing the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and so on. Now, Mozart makes a series of variations on this tune. One of them begins... Then another. Another one begins. And yet another. They are all different pieces, yet they are all in one way or another that same tune. The jazz musician does exactly the same thing. There are infinite possible versions of Sweet Sue, for example. The clarinet player might improvise one chorus of it this way. He could have done that in any number of ways, and if I asked him to do it again tomorrow morning, it would come out a whole other piece. But it would still be Sweet Sue, and it would still be jazz. In fact, let's ask him to try it again and see how different it is.
Now we come to the most exciting part of jazz, for me at any rate, simultaneous improvising. This happens when two or more musicians improvise on the same tune at the same time. Neither one knows exactly what the other is going to do, but they listen to each other and pick up phrases from each other and sort of talk together. What ties them together is the chords, the harmony of Sweet Sue. Over this harmony, they play two different melodic lines at the same time, which in musical terms makes a kind of accidental counterpoint. This is the germ of what is called the jam session. Now the trumpet is going to join with the clarinet in a double improvisation on Sweet Sue and see if you can distinguish the two melodic lines. The business of improvising together gave rise to the style called Dixieland, which is constantly having a big revival. One of the most exhilarating sounds in all music is that of a Dixieland band blaring out its final chorus, all stops out, with everyone improvising together. Here is that Dixieland chorus of Sweet Sue. See how exciting this can be. But jazz is not all improvisation, not by a long shot. Much of it gets written down, and it is then called an arrangement. The great days of arrangements were the 30s, when big startling swing arrangements were showing off the virtuosity of the great bands like Casaloma, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, the Dorsey Brothers, and so on. Now jazz is hard to write down. There is no way of notating exactly those quarter tones we talked about, nor the various smears and growls and subtle intonations. Even the rhythms can only be approximated in notation, so that much of the jazz quality is left to the instincts of the player who is reading the music. Still, it does work, because the instincts of those players are so deep and genuine. Let's listen to a good solid swing arrangement of a chorus of Sweet Sue, as we might have heard it back in 1938. Now remember, this arrangement was for dancing. In 1938, we were all dancing, and that brings up the most important point of all. Nobody seems to dance to jazz very much anymore except for mambo lovers, and they are limited to those who are athletic enough to do it. What has happened to dancing? We used to have a new dance practically every month. The Lindy Hop, the Shag, the Peabody, the Big Apple, Boogie, Susie Q. Now we have only dances you have to take lessons to do. What does this mean? Simply that the emphasis is on listening these days instead of on singing and dancing. 
This change had to happen. For one thing, the tremendous development of the recording industry has taught us to listen in a way we never did before. But even more important, with the advent of more complicated jazz like swing and boogie-woogie and bop, our interest has shifted to the music itself and to the virtuosity of its performance. That is, we are interested in what notes are being played, how well, how fast, and with what originality. You can't listen to bop intelligently and dance too, murmuring sweet nothings into your partner's ear. You have to listen as hard as you can to hear what's happening. So in a way, jazz has begun to be a kind of chamber music, an advanced, sophisticated art mainly for listening, full of influences of Bartok and Stravinsky, and very, very serious. Let's listen for a moment to this kind of arrangement of our old friend Sweet Sue. Now, whether you call that weird piece cool or crazy or futuristic or modernistic or whatever, the fact is that it is bordering on serious concert music. The arrangement begins to be a composition. Take away the beat, and you might not even know it's jazz at all. In fact, let's hear a little of it without the beat and see. we are hearing might perfectly well be a concert piece. Why is it jazz? Because it is played by jazz men on jazz instruments and because it has its roots in the soil of jazz and not of Bach. I think the key word to all this is the word cool. It means what it implies. Jazz used to advertise itself as hot. Now the heat is off. The jazz player has become a highly serious person. He may even be an intellectual. He tends to wear Ivy League clothes, have a crew cut, or wear horn-rimmed glasses. He may have studied music at a conservatory or a university. This was unthinkable in the old days. Our new jazz man plays more quietly with greater concentration on musical values, on tone quality, technique. He knows Bartok and Stravinsky, and his music shows it. He tends to avoid big, flashy endings, the music just stops when it is over. As he has become cool, so have his listeners. They don't dance. They listen respectfully as if to chamber music and applaud politely at the end. At jazz nightclubs all over the world, you find audiences who do not necessarily have a drink in their hands and who do not beat out the rhythm and carry on as we did when I was a boy. It is all rather cool and surprisingly controlled considering that jazz is essentially an emotional experience. Where does this lead us in our investigation? To some pretty startling conclusions. There are those who conclude from all this that here in the new jazz is the real beginning of serious American music, that at last the American composer has his own expression. Of course, when they say this, they are intimating that all American symphonic works up to now 
are nothing but personalized imitations of the European symphonic tradition from Mozart to Mahler. Sometimes, I must say, I think they have a point. At any rate, we can be sure of one thing, that the line between serious music and jazz grows less and less clear. We have serious composers writing in the jazz idiom, and we have jazz musicians becoming serious composers. Perhaps we've stumbled on a theory. But theory or no theory, jazz goes on, finding new paths, sometimes reviving old styles, but in either case, looking for freshness. In any art that is really vital and searching, splits are bound to develop, arguments arise and factions form. Just as in painting, the non-objectivists are at sword's point with the representationalists, and in poetry, the imagists declaim against the surrealists, so in jazz music, we have a major battle between the traditionalists and the progressives. These latter are the ones who are trying hardest to get away from the patterns of half a century, experimenting with new sonorities, using note relationships that are not common to the old jazz, and in general trying to keep jazz alive and interesting by broadening its scope. Let us see if we can feel the essential difference between the two schools by listening to a progressive jam session on, you guessed it, Sweet Sue. This style will embody all the elements we have discussed as distinguishing jazz from all other music, but will use them in a new and different way.
we've heard jazz as it comes from the past, and we've had a sample of what might turn out to be the future of jazz. What we're hearing now is jazz in the present tense, still a fresh and vital art with a solid past and an exciting future. Our jazz feature, Maestro Leonard Bernstein. What is jazz? And uh, it's very interesting. Um, as I mentioned before, this recording was uh, done in mid-1956, and the final musical example was, of course, Miles Davis and his first great quintet with John Coltrane on tenor saxophone, Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And, of course, that was their um, variation on the uh, standard tune Sweet Sue. And, of course, um, although Bernstein didn't call their names, um, he said that that was jazz in the present tense. And, of course, uh, in 1956, that band was probably at the center of uh, jazz development and one of the most important bands in jazz history, as has been already proven. So I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, Leonard Bernstein looking at jazz and, and kind of taking it apart. And uh, although he, he talked in technical terms, um, I hope that you found um, his way of communicating um, those technical terms in Fairly simple um, language uh, made you um, enlightened you a little more on on some of the inner workings of jazz and music in general. This was the whole idea of this presentation, rather than as he said at the beginning, this isn't going to be a history of jazz. We all know about that one coming up the river from New Orleans and uh, you know to all the great cities, Chicago, New York, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, this was more what jazz is and what jazz isn't. And, of course, uh, the developments in, in jazz music since 1956 have been absolutely enormous. Um, but uh, it proved that Leonard Bernstein was one of the great classical musicians that uh, respected jazz, understood it, and respected the people that played jazz as much as he respected his fellow classical musicians. He felt exactly the same way about that, and that was throughout his uh, illustrious career. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. That was part two of our educational uh, series on the jazz show. Uh, we do this every year. Uh, we do uh, last week, if you were with us, we, we heard um, Cannonball Adderley talking about uh, uh, the history of jazz from a more historical point of view. Uh, less relying on technique and and uh, how how the music is put together and Maestro Bernstein's uh, variation on what is jazz, giving you a little more idea about how uh, the inner workings of, of of the music. So I certainly hope you enjoyed it. We're going to uh, return um, in a very few moments with uh, a tribute to one of the founding fathers of 
a group called the Jazz Crusaders, and I'm talking about Joseph Leslie Sample, Joe Sample, who was born February 1st, 1939, in Houston, Texas. And we'll be talking more and listening to some music by one of the finest jazz groups in the history of the music, the Jazz Crusaders. Meanwhile, this is The Jazz Show. My name's Gavin Walker, and you're listening to CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. And that has been The Jazz Feature, and we'll be right back with music by The Jazz Crusaders and tell you a little bit about the great Joe Sample, who passed away September 12th. He was 75 years old and uh, one of the master musicians in the history of, of this music. So we shall return and uh, <laughs> with some more music. Your access to money during the studies at UBC will most likely be limited, but it is a priority of the AMS Food Bank to ensure your access to food is not. The AMS Food Bank provides emergency food relief seven days a week for all UBC students. To volunteer with the Food Bank or for inquiries about how to take advantage of the services provided, contact them at foodbank at ams.ubc.ca. For more information, find the AMS Food Bank on Facebook or feel free to visit anytime across from the Wellness Center and Sprouts. UBC's Museum of Anthropology displays long-term and visiting exhibits of indigenous art from around the world, and guided tours are free. Our permanent collection features one of the world's finest exhibits of Northwest Coast First Nations art. Our collection includes 36,000 ethnographic pieces, 535,000 archaeological pieces and over 600 pieces in the Kroner Ceramics Gallery. There's a lot to take in. Luckily at the Museum of Anthropology, final exams are always take home. If you've never checked out this world-class facility, now's your chance. The Museum of Anthropology is located right on campus and free for all UBC students and faculty. Come enjoy our collection and resources. some weather for you. Uh, tonight is uh, going to be clear with a low of 13, and tomorrow is going to be a really nice day with a little bit of a mix of sun and cloud with a low of 13 and highs between 24 and highs between 20 and 24. There you go. And uh, it's going to be quite a nice day. 
Then a little bit of a transition starting Wednesday, a little more cloud on Wednesday, but still a nice day with a low of 13 and a high of 18. But then Thursday is turning cloudy with a 70% chance of a shower with a low of 15 and a high of 19. Friday and Saturday, uh, both cloudy days with a 60% chance of a shower, low of 13, high between 19 and 21. And then back to a mix of sun and cloud for Sunday with a low of 12 and a high of 22. So we hope that brings in some more good weather. But uh, it won't be too unpleasant, but uh, you better enjoy yourself tomorrow and Wednesday because then the weather's going to change on Thursday. Mm Mm-hmm. We get to a gentleman by the name of Joe Sample. Joe Sample, uh, of course, um, was born in Houston, Texas, and along with his friends, uh, tenor saxophonist Wilton Felder, trombonist Wayne Henderson, and drummer Nesbert Hooper, who was better known as Styx Hooper, they all went to uh, um, university in, uh, in Texas. They were all buddies, and they were all into music. And what happened, of course, was uh, that they all decided, uh, they started playing music, and, and of course, started um, getting gigs and so on. And they all left uh, Texas Southern University. None of them graduated, but they were already working as professional musicians and, uh, and making a, a small name for themselves. They, they were capable, uh, as they were all excellent musicians, they were capable of playing R&B um, as the gig uh, required or straight-ahead jazz, which is what they really wanted to do. But, of course, uh, R&B was a little more saleable, and um, they found gigs doing both styles of music. <laughs> they called them, as an R&B band, they called themselves the Nighthawks. And uh, as um, a jazz group, uh, they referred to themselves, um, their first name wasn't the Jazz Crusaders. They, were, uh, they called themselves something else. But then they became the Jazz Crusaders. And then they all left Texas and headed for Los Angeles, hoping to um, make a name for themselves uh, more nationally and also trying to get a recording contract. They auditioned as the Nighthawks, the R&B band, because they figured that would get them into the recording studios quicker. But nothing happened. They had gigs, yes. They played lounges, strip clubs, uh, bars, playing R&B, and, of course, jazz clubs playing jazz. So they decided uh, they were heard by the redoubtable um, producer and owner of Pacific Jazz Records, Richard Bach. He heard them in a jazz club as the Jazz Crusaders and said, you know, these kids are absolutely phenomenal, and I'm going to record them, which is what he did. And they took off as a, as a jazz group. So they remained as such during the um, 60s, starting about 1961 from their first album. We're actually going to hear 
um, a thing that uh, a piece of music from their very first album that they did for Pacific Jazz Records, and it was called the Freedom Sound, and we're going to hear that that tune. Joe Sample was the musical director. He was the most sophisticated of all the Crusaders, uh, not only because he was a piano player, but uh, because he was well-versed. He, uh, he was so talented, he was well-versed in composing and arranging. And uh, he did a lot of the, uh, put, actually put the sound together of that band. And, uh, of course, the other guys were no slouches and great musicians. And um, so we're going to hear an example from their very first album. This was done in May of 1961 in Los Angeles. And this is a Joe Sample composition. Mr. Sample, of course, is playing piano. Uh, Wilton Felder on tenor saxophone. Wayne Henderson on trombone. And a young man named Roy Gaines is added on guitar on this track. Bassist is Jimmy Bond. And uh, the spokesperson and MC for the band, he was the front man, was Nesbert Hooper, the drummer, Styx Hooper. And we're going to hear a tune that put this band on the jazz map. And here it is now. It's called The Freedom Sound.
As a tribute to the late Joe Sample, who passed away September 12th, a couple of days ago, 
He was 75 years old, and uh, he died uh, actually from lung cancer. He had had this for uh, a little while, and uh, yes, terrible disease. But um, he remained active uh, right up until about a month ago, and uh, it was always... I, I remember reading somewhere he was supposed to be playing at uh, Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London, and he had to cancel those gigs. So uh, that's when I guess uh, things came to a, a conclusion, sad to say. Anyway, this was from the Jazz Crusaders' first album called The Freedom Sound, and it was uh, recorded over a period of time in a couple of sessions in Los Angeles in May of 1961. And uh, they signed a contract with uh, producer Richard Bach and uh, recorded for Pacific Jazz Records as the Jazz Crusaders. And, of course, the people involved, all fellow Texans, they all grew up together. Uh, Wilton Felder on tenor saxophone, Wayne Henderson on trombone, Joe Sample, of course, who we're paying tribute to on piano. He was the band's arranger and uh, organized all of, the, all of the tunes in the repertoire and Styx Hooper on drums. And uh, also on here was uh, a guest, Roy Gaines, on guitar on the first track, and bassist Jimmy Bond. Um, the four uh, essential members of the Jazz Crusaders, of course, stayed together. Um, the only real change in, uh, in the band, with the exception of this first album, the only real change in the band over a period of time during the 60s were uh, different bass players. And we're going to hear some live stuff from uh, a little later on. But the first two pieces we heard, uh, this the first one was with Roy Gaines on, on guitar, added to the uh, sound, and that was um, the title track. And that was written by Joe Sample, and it was called The Freedom Sound. The second tune, of course, was written by Ernest Gold. It was the theme from the movie Exodus and um, played by the Jazz Crusaders. And uh, at the time, everyone was, uh, everyone was doing that tune, so they added it to their repertoire as well. Joe Sample had a, a long and illustrious career, of course. The uh, Jazz Crusaders decided in 1971, it was a bit of a corporate decision. Uh, music had changed by that time. Uh, fusion music was beginning to happen. Uh, electronic instruments were uh, being introduced to jazz. Uh, there were some new things happening, uh, starting with people like Miles Davis and Herbie Hancock and, and Weather Report and so on. And um, they had a conference, and they decided to drop jazz from their name, the Jazz Crusaders, and simply became the Crusaders. And um, eventually, uh, not only uh, Wilton Felder, who I've always admired as, as a great saxophonist, um, he also took up the bass as well, the electric bass, and became um, one of the first called studio musicians in Los Angeles as an electric bass player. And, of course, all these men, and, and Joe Sample especially, went on to, um, Joe was, was such a versatile artist, he, he went into producing uh, uh, singers and, and different albums. And of course, he did, he did work under his own name and uh, all kinds of stuff. But it's really his 
the time with the jazz crusaders that uh, that were interested in for purposes of the jazz show because I love this band and unfortunately that was another thing uh, they were such a good little band and as strong as any band that was on the scene at the time but they they I remember talking with with um, Nesbert Hooper the drummer Sticks and and he said you know we never really got the recognition we deserved um, from 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 the critics, uh, and he said basically, uh, you know, during that time you needed that, and you needed that encouragement. And he, you know, we he said we put out lots of records, and they were kind of, oh yeah, they're good, you know, but nothing special, this sort of thing. And um, uh, unfortunately, um, that was felt by a lot of the people in the band. And I got to know Joe Sample a little bit, and he echoed the same thing when uh, when I chatted with him. We ran into one another over in Hawaii, and and uh, um, a number of years ago, and and got to be uh, got to be friends o- over there. And he told me a few things as well about the uh, the whole the whole incident and the whole idea of the Jazz Crusaders, because that was the center of their um, their their musical motivation was this band. Anyway, we're going to uh, get to some music recorded um, at the legendary Lighthouse in Los Angeles. That was a club that they played. Um, it was a club that was located down at Hermosa Beach, and uh, they were there a lot. They were a popular band. This is a later Jazz Crusaders. This is one there. Uh, this is really good stuff. And uh, it features, of course, once again, Wilton Felder on tenor saxophone, Wayne Henderson on trombone, and on bass, the great Leroy Vinegar is uh, with the band uh, for this engagement, along with the drummer Sticks Hooper and, of course, pianist Joe Sample. We're going to hear three tunes. This is going to be a good long set. Um, the first tune was written by Wayne Henderson. It's called Scratch. And uh, the second tune is a Leroy Vinegar composition called Doing That Thing. And the final tune of the set is a Miles Davis composition called Milestones, sometimes known as Just Miles. Anyway, these are uh, uh, some recordings of the Jazz Crusaders at their very best, live and in front of an enthusiastic audience. So catch this.
Yeah. Scratch.
Thank you very much. Thank you. It's about time to take an intermission. Could we have a big warm of applause once again for the dynamic jazz crusaders, please? The jazz crusaders. A live performance as a small tribute to the great uh, pianist Joe Sample, who was one of the major voices and the arranger and um, one of the uh, founding fathers of the Jazz Crusaders, which um, later became the Crusaders. Uh, This set was recorded at the uh, Lighthouse in Los Angeles in uh, January of 1966, And we heard uh, the great Wilton Felder on tenor saxophone, Wayne Henderson on trombone, Joe Sample, of course, on piano, Leroy Vinegar on bass, and Nesbert Styx Hooper on drums. And, of course, um, with the exception of Leroy Vinegar, uh, all those uh, men that I mentioned were all born and raised in Texas and and, uh, were boyhood friends and began playing music when they were just uh, pre-teens and carried on and became the Jazz Crusaders. We heard three tunes. First one was a Will Henderson or a a Wayne Henderson composition called Scratch. Uh, The second tune, kind of an exotic thing written by Leroy Vinegar, was called Doing That Thing. And the final tune of the set was uh, Miles Davis's famous uh, anthem, Milestones, sometimes known as simply Miles. We've got two more from the Jazz Crusaders from a slightly later date. One of their um, infrequent trips back east, uh, they got a, a date to play at the Newport Jazz Festival and uh, in Newport, Rhode Island. And it's all the same people here, except that uh, Herbie Lewis is the bass player on these two tracks. And that will uh, conclude our um, tribute to Joe Sample and the Jazz Crusaders. We're going to hear um, a tune called The Young Rabbits. (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm trying to uh, get the information as to who wrote that. I can't remember. Uh, Actually, it was written by trombonist Wayne Henderson. And we opened with this tune. We're going to close with another version of this tune. This was the band's anthem, and this was written by the great Joe Sample. And we're going to hear another updated version of the Freedom Sound. So here are these two tracks to conclude our uh, tribute to Joe Sample and the Jazz Crusaders, recorded at the Newport Jazz Festival in the summer of 1966. The Young Rabbits first, followed by the Freedom Sound.
had uh, many requests to play the Freedom Song.
Our final tribute to the great, late Joe Sample, pianist and founding father of the Jazz Crusaders. And we heard uh, a whole bunch of examples of um, how great that band was. And uh, as I mentioned before, I got to know Joe a little bit in uh, Hawaii while I was on vacation there a number of years ago. And we got to uh, jam together and hang out together. And he told me that the the Jazz Crusaders um, were frustrated at times with the with the lack of uh, critical recognition, which uh, um, they definitely deserved. And uh, they were one of the finest bands around. They and then in the early seventies, they uh, kind of opened up their repertoire and and dropped the name jazz, and. Um, began uh, working with electronic instruments and getting into more uh, jazz rock fusion and, of course, doing it extremely well. Um, but um, their real heart was in the Jazz Crusaders, and, and we heard uh, a final two examples of this fine band recorded at the Newport Jazz Festival, one of their um, infrequent visits back east. And uh, this was done in uh, the summer of 1966, July, the 4th of July, as a matter of fact, celebrating, uh, yeah, the 4th of July. Anyway, uh, we heard two tunes that were um, from early recordings of um, the Jazz Crusaders, and these, of course, were updated versions, and the band in its most mature form. And uh, the people involved here, Wilton Felder on tenor saxophone, Wayne Henderson on trombone, Joe Sample on piano, and Nesbert Sticks Hooper on drums. And, of course, they were the four founding fathers. On bass, um, actually from Pasadena, uh, but he had moved east, Herbie Lewis on bass on uh, these final two tracks. And the two tunes we heard, of course, uh, we opened with Wayne Henderson's uh, up-tempo thing called The Young Rabbits. And uh, then we went to probably the most famous tune associated with the band because that was also on their very first recording and the title of their first recording called The Freedom Sound. And that was written by pianist Joe Sample, who ostensibly we were paying tribute to this evening. Joe was born February 1st, 1939 in Houston, Texas, and died at his home um, from the ravages of lung cancer on September 12th. And uh, he was 75 years old and had a long, illustrious career in music, um, doing so many things that would be uh, would take up a lot of time to mention all his accomplishments. But uh, we heard some very, very fine examples of his jazz piano playing with the Jazz Crusaders. So I hope you enjoyed that set. We're going to be back with uh, some Cannonball Adderley. It's his birthday today, September 15th. And Cannonball's birthday is going to be celebrated by not a recording with his own band. This is a, a, an all-star group with Cannonball and Wes Montgomery right after these messages. You are listening to CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker. And uh, check out these messages, and we'll be right back. 
Whoever said money can't buy you friends obviously wasn't a member at CITR. When you become a member, you get the Friends of CITR card with incredible discounts in the Main Street area at Antisocial Skateboard Shop, Devil May Wear, Lucky's Comics, Neptune Records, RX Comics, Red Cat Records, the Regional Assembly of Text, the Wallflower Modern Diner, and Woo Vintage Clothing. To find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus or go online to citr.ca. The Capital One Just for Laughs comedy tour returns with a stellar lineup of headliners, starring stand-up writer and person Dimitri Martin. I like people watching, mostly this one woman. <laughs> Funny as hell host John Doerr, Canadian Comedy Award winner Levi McDougall, and podcast superstar Todd Glass. The Capital One Just for Laughs comedy tour at the Orpheum on November 14th. Tickets on sale now at Ticketmaster. For details, check Metro News or go to hahaha.com slash comedy tour. We're back. And uh, just a, another couple of things I'd like to tell you about before we get into some music by celebrating Cannonball Adderley's birthday today. Um, I'd just like to mention two great websites. The website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society, which is coastaljazz.ca. It's a very fine, comprehensive website. And website of my good friend Brian Nation, of course. Uh, I always mention, and it's vancouverjazz.com. They have all kinds of information on there, all kinds of links that you can get onto, biographies, information, opinions, and, of course, our jazz features are listed on there as well with a, a little essay uh, as to what the uh, feature is all about, written by yours truly. Uh, check out Jazz on the Air sometime if you uh, get on that website, and you'll see what I mean. Both of those websites are very, very good. And, of course, uh, Jazz pops up all over the city, and um, it's, both of them are very good sites to get onto because you'll find out what's happening all over. Um, and... Uh, just check out the various links on those sites. So VancouverJazz.com or VancouverJazz.ca and um, VancouverJazz.com. <laughs> it's right. Well, get it straight, Gavin. All right. One more thing I'd like to mention is uh, my good friend Ken Speller, who is a very fine saxophonist and, and all-around musician, plays not only the saxophone, plays the flute, clarinet, and so on. Very, very well-trained musician. But he's also a wonderful repairman. He knows what to do with a saxophone, how to tweak it, how to, how to tune it up, how to fix it, how to adjust this, that, and the other things so that the instrument plays as well as you play and as well as you want to play. Um, he's good with clarinets. He's good with flutes uh, as well. And he works from his home, and his home is at the 13th and Lonsdale area in North Vancouver, so he can keep his prices to a very reasonable amount uh, to fix your instrument. So whether you're a pro, amateur, student, whatever, uh, and play the saxophone or the clarinet or the flute, um, you've got to tune and tweak those instruments um, and and keep them in top shape. Otherwise, they don't play very well. And uh, um, it can be very discouraging for you as, uh, as a performer uh, because you're not going to sound your best unless, uh, unless the instrument is at its best. So Ken will get 
take care of that business for you. He's located, as I said, 13th and Lonsdale area in North Vancouver. He has a phone, 778-800-1933, 778-800-1933, or K Speller, K-S-P-E-L-L-E-R, underscore 14 at yahoo.ca. K Speller, underscore 14 at yahoo.ca. Ken Speller. All right. Cannonball Adderley was born in Tampa, Florida, the Tampa Cannonball, this day in 1928. He passed away in 1975, relatively young man, but uh, what an incredible musician, um, brilliant, brilliant uh, mind, and one of the great communicators in jazz. That's why he became such a successful band leader for so many years, uh, because he made the audience feel so good about listening to music, and he could bring them in just with uh, saying uh, a few words to them and, and, and that sort of thing. And, of course, he was the subject of our jazz feature last week, um, narrating a history of jazz. So you can, if you were listening last week, you could hear sort of how warm and wonderful his uh, verbal approach was and, and, and his lucidity. But uh, on the alto saxophone... Many people think of Julian Adderley as one of the finest examples of alto saxophone virtuosity. And we're going to hear him on a session which is uh, not with his own band. It's actually called Cannonball Adderley and the Pole Winners. It's kind of an all-star date. And it features um, Julian Adderley on alto saxophone with Wes Montgomery on guitar and a young man who was uh, going to uh, become a member of the Cannonball Adderley Quintet, uh, a regular member, Victor Feldman, and uh, he'll be heard on piano, also on vibes. And on bass, the great Ray Brown, who at the time of this recording, of course, was working with Canada's own Oscar Peterson. And on drums, Cannonball's regular drummer, the wonderful Louis Hayes. We're going to hear three tunes from this album. We're going to open uh, two of the tunes that actually are written by Victor Feldman. Uh, he excelled as a composer. And the first tune is called The Chant. And then we're going to move to a standard by Frank Lesser, a great tune called Never Will I Marry. And uh, tune number three, written by, actually, um, Victor Feldman only wrote, oh, tune number three, we're going to do, yes, we're going to do the, another Victor Feldman original called Azul Serapi. So three tunes, The Chant, Never Will I Marry, and Azul Serapi from this uh, wonderful album, Cannonball Adderley and the Pole Winners. Once again, Mr. Adderley on alto saxophone, Wes Montgomery on guitar, Victor Feldman on piano and vibes, Ray Brown on bass, Lewis Hayes on drums. Happy birthday, Cannonball.
part of our small tribute to Cannonball Adderley. Julian Adderley would have been 86 years old today. He was born on this day in 1928 in Tampa, Florida. One of the great voices of the alto saxophone, band leader, educator, and just all around um, very unique and extremely intelligent man. We heard him on this recording, which uh, most people, I think, would play something by the Cannonball Adderley Quintet or Sextet or, and, and so on. But I've, uh, for this tribute, I, I picked a couple of albums that uh, aren't normally heard um, on radio and are kind of overlooked. And they're both, uh, um, we're going to hear another album right after this. But this one is called Cannonball Adderley and the Poll Winners. And the poll winners, of course, uh, in the year that this was recorded, 1960, uh, the poll winners meaning the jazz magazine polls, Downbeat, Metronome, uh, Ray Brown on bass, of course, who was uh, one of the stars, the mainstay of the Oscar Peterson trio, and the great Wes Montgomery, um, who actually Cannonball brought to the attention of producer Oren Keepnews. Um, and uh, encourage Cannonball, uh, encourage West Montgomery to move to New York, and of course went on to West went on to uh, stardom and became one of the major voices of the guitar. So we heard um, Julian Adderley on alto saxophone with West Montgomery on guitar, Victor Feldman on piano and vibes, and we heard two compositions by Victor too. Great talented musician, Ray Brown on bass and Lewis Hayes on drums. The first Feldman composition was called The Chant. Then we moved to a standard tune written by Frank Lesser called Never Will I Marry, with uh, Victor switching over to vibes on that tune. And then we ended with another Victor Feldman composition called Azul Serape. All right, we're going to move to another album uh, as a tribute, a small tribute to Cannonball Adderley. This is called Cannonball's Bossa Nova, and it featured Mr. Adderley with the uh, Bossa Rio Sextet, led by pianist Sergio Mendes. And, of course, um, a whole bunch of people in here. Uh, Dervel Ferreira on guitar, Octavio Bailey Jr. on bass, Dum Om Romal on drums. And the... Um, there's a couple of added musicians on uh, on track two. Um, Pedro Paolo on trumpet and uh, Paolo Mura on alto saxophone is added on, on track two. We're going to hear three tunes, all recorded on the same day. The first one was written by um, uh, Darval uh, Fiera, and it's called Clouds. The second tune was written by... Uh, uh, Yal Donato, and it's called Muha Saudad. And the third tune is written by pianist Sergio Mendes, and it's called Groovy Samba. So here then from this uh, rather elusive album, a uh, further tribute to the great Julian Cannonball Adderley, Cannonball's Bossa Nova, beginning with Clouds.
That's from an album called Cannonball's Bossa Nova, and it's a rather overlooked item. Uh, Cannonball with the Bossa Rio Sextet, and all of those guys, of course, are from uh, Brazil, led by pianist Sergio Mendes and uh, Dorval Fiera on guitar, Octavio Baile Jr. on bass, Doom Omromal on drums, and on the second tune, couple of guys added uh, to the ensemble. Pedro Paulo on trumpet and Paulo Mora on alto saxophone were added on the second tune. Um, we heard three tunes, and I did change the last one. I was going to play one other one, but it's a bit too long, so I uh, moved it uh, up a little bit. We heard um, the opening tune was called Clouds, and it was written by uh, Mr. Fiera, uh, Dorval Fiera, and the second tune was called the Mina Saudades and written by Yal Donato. Uh, and that featured the extra horns on there along with uh, Cannonball's gorgeous alto saxophone. And the final tune was a very mellow thing called Joyce's Sambas and written by Mr. Fiera once again. So that was uh, from Cannonball's Bossa Nova and celebrating the 86th birthday of the great Cannonball Adderley. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we got to go and uh, make room for uh, the next show, so please don't touch the dial. And my name's Gavin Walker. You have been listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. We'll be back next Monday, seven days' time. 
and uh, we hope to see you then. We start at 9 and carry on right through to midnight with three hours of some of the very best in jazz music. So take care, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye for now. Ba-do-ba-dee-oo-doo-wee